Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I remember the drive from Upper Hutt over there and my, my biggest fear the whole time was that Stephen was going to come to this realisation of what he had done and clam up. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan and this is Crimes NZ. In this episode, we're looking into the case of Coral Ellen Burrows. She was reported missing on September 9th, 2003. She was just six years old. And former detective John Golter worked on the case, which was known as Operation Reef. I remember very clearly heading off to work for a normal day in Wellington at the police station and being home about an hour later and throwing some clothes in the bag and three hours later um, in the wire wrapper. So that day uh, certainly changed direction quite quickly, but uh, it's par for the course. Was that on the day that she was reported missing? Yes, it was. So I think I started, uh, was meant to start work at three, and I think by six o'clock I was in the wire wrapper. So, yeah, we got over there pretty smartly. Is that uh, normal for police from Wellington to be deployed into the wire wrapper? Yeah, it, it, I, I mean, it's all about, all about circumstances, and I think that uh, being a young child, uh, missing from the school... And there's probably a few things that popped up which, you know, on the face of it, it looked a bit strange. So, yeah, not that unusual, really, for police to be deployed from other areas to help out. What did Um, you have to go on when you got there? Well, not much, really. I mean, um, we sort of jumped in a car, me and a a couple of others, and shot over the hill to find out that, you know, basically that was a missing person, that uh, Coral sort of later in the day had been found that she hadn't gone to school and, of course, the alarm bells started going because that's abnormal for a start, but, you know, kids can go missing. Really, that was all. It was really about just going over there, talking to the local uh, police that had had some involvement with the early stages of the inquiry and just trying to find out uh, what had happened. It's funny, uh, the the guy who was um, arrested, Stephen Williams... He was the one who had allegedly dropped her off at school, so it seems right. like sort of obvious that he would be the man to look at. Um, maybe let's start with your first encounter with him. Yeah, well, you know, like all these inquiries, you know, you have to be very careful that you don't get the tunnel vision on early on in yeah. the piece. And we've all got perceptions and biases and, you know, all these things affect how you view things. So you, you have to be very aware uh, not to go and hone in on the first thing that feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's, you know, of course, um, the last person to see anyone that uh, is missing or deceased is 
absolutely going to be a person of interest from very early on in the proceedings. So, yeah, there's no doubt that uh, Stephen was in the mix, but definitely not exclusionary to anyone else. Not at that stage anyway, that's for sure. What sort of guy was he? Um, well, you know, it was interesting. I'd spoken to some of the local um, police officers at the time because being a small area, they had... Uh, had dealings with Stephen, and, you know, there was mixed views, but generally he wasn't a really nice guy, that's for sure. He wasn't? No, but what I do, what you do know is that over the years I've learnt that you, you've got to really find these things out for yourself pretty quickly because everyone has a different experience depending on uh, on what day of the week they dealt with an individual. <laughs> so I certainly knew that he was a person who'd had a bit of criminal history and... Uh, what sort of stuff? I can't remember exactly, of course. There's a lot of convictions in there for violence and drugs and so forth. So, you know, my first impression was he was probably not a very nice guy. But, I, but of course, I did get to meet him later on that day. And when I did meet Stephen, he was walking down the road back towards his house and it was about, I think it was about seven or eight at night. And he was bizarrely quite amicable, helpful, which was... Uh, a total turnaround from uh, how the detectives that had dealt with him early on had said that he was earlier in the day, so that was a bit strange for a starter. Yeah. So tell me about the investigation. What did you do over the next few days? Well, uh, my role really was to deal with Stephen as the as the stepfather and the last person who saw him. Um, and the rest of the inquiry was starting to uh, build up as well. So I wanted to speak to him, of course, and so I got that opportunity around six or seven at night. I arra- After speaking with him for a while, I arranged to talk with him the following morning just to uh, find out what he'd been doing, his side of the story, just to start digging around into the background, really, considering we're, we're on day one. So I really wanted to get stuck into that. So, yeah, we, we left it at that. The relationship was good with him. I was quite confident that I was going to go and see him the next morning. <laughs> so tell me about that. Yeah, so, well, obviously I um, had a group that I was working with or a, or a partner and we went back home and uh, worked out what we'd want to do for the, for the next day. And, of course, we went round there in the morning, around 7 or 8 in the morning, to find that... Uh, Stephen had been whisked away in an ambulance to the to Masterton. He'd had some form of uh, breakdown or um, not quite sure what, but he he wasn't very well anyway. So he had been taken away to the hospital. So that was a bit of a curveball, and uh, we really had to sort of think, what are we going to do now? So <laughs> away we went up to Masterton to sort of find out how uh, he was faring and see if we could get to speak to him at a later time when uh, he'd had some medical attention and so forth. So yes, He a, went back to jail at some point as well, didn't he? Yes, he did, yeah. So it was, this early stage was quite weird how it all occurred. Uh, so eventually, with Stephen, we, um, later on that day he was released from hospital and he was fine and we had a word to him and took him back to um, Featherston, back down from Masterton to Featherston Police Station and uh, we got DNA uh, or some blood samples for DNA purposes and everything was looking pretty good but it was quite late in the day so we had a, a quick word with Stephen and then we found out that he had a, an arrest warrant from a past matter that hadn't been dealt with so on that basis of course we had to keep him in custody because 
Um, if I can remember clearly, it was a bench warrant, so he was going to have to appear again and be sentenced on a on another matter. So it was another curveball. <laughs> so uh, he ended up going back to Marston that night and be kept in the cells to appear in court the next morning on that uh, warrant. So, yeah, that was the early stages of the inquiry. So it was uh, interesting times. A lot of trips back and forth from Featherston to Masterton, that's for sure. Meanwhile, I presume that there's a big search going on for... Uh, yeah. It's Cor- Coral Allen Burrows, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so al- alongside that little story with, uh, in my part of it, with Stephen, of course, there's a big inquiry starting to be you know, wound up with uh, searches and all the specific areas that you would have for any large inquiry, general inquiries, interviewing people, trying to find out what's actually gone here, interviewing people at school, interviewing family. So there's a lot of people starting to come in and be involved in this inquiry. And a lot of interest as well, being a, you know, being a, young, a young girl, small rural community, there's a lot of things there that heighten people's interests, I think. Yeah, we might come back to that because it was a really... Ho- I was in Wellington at the time and, um, you know, it was front page every day, of course. Yeah. Um, you were quite early on in the piece asking for sightings of a beige or fawn-coloured Lada sedan yeah. in the area. What was going on there? So one of the things you, you do in these inquiries is try to track movements. As a lot of this information is starting to come in and and locals are being interviewed, people at the school, there's a heck of a lot of information coming in. You are trying to firm up on sightings. And, for example, by that time we'd spoken to Stephen and had an idea where he might have been. We were trying to get information from the uh, community if they'd seen his vehicle, seen where he might have been, but not just to the exclusion of him, that we were trying to get information about a lot of other things as well. So... Even though Stephen was sort of parked almost off to the side in some respects, and that was my little area, there was a massive inquiry going on, also looking at all other options, so to speak. So did you learn anything interesting from him when you were um, interviewing him about what he did that day? Yeah, well, it was interesting because it was only 10 or 11 days between the inquiry starting and him being arrested, which is quite a short time in lots of respects, and what I did learn, and I look, you know, I didn't think about this a lot at the time, but looking back, uh, methamphetamine was definitely around, but it wasn't something that necessarily I'd had a lot of experience with. It was an up-and-coming drug, and we'd all heard about it, and I'd had a bit of time in the drug squad and so forth, but the effects on behaviour, I think, was one of the... uh, He was one of the first people that I really got an insight into the the manic behaviour from someone who had, you know, had a meth problem. Yeah. And... You, you were aware that he was um, taking well, meth? Yes, and I must say, initially, you know, people had been talking about it and, and saying, oh, you know, he's been, he's involved in methamphetamine. But it, it was really that time um, from the hospital uh, and speaking with him that I saw that manic behaviour and it was really extreme. And I know it was a shock to... Uh, myself and both Nick Lane, who was my, my partner at the time, we were both like quite amazed at that manic behaviour that he displayed. And of course, later on, we realised that 
he'd been running around and using methamphetamine and hadn't been asleep for you know two or three days and a whole lot of other factors which made sense of that. But uh, definitely was a, a wake up. That's for sure. So at some point you you have the idea of talking to his mother or, or does she come to you? Yes, well, you know, um, trying to make sense of all this, uh, like I've explained to you in a, in a very short time and trying to uh, find a way to deal with this, you've got to be pretty agile in your thinking and your approach, how are you going to do this? Because we have a few curveballs, suddenly we've got a person of interest at this stage who is later to become, you know, the key main suspect who's now in custody because he appeared in court and on that matter, which was unrelated to any of this inquiry. So that was uh, difficult again. But uh, very early on, his, his mother had made... Uh, I'd got to meet his mother um, at the hospital. Um, I actually gave her a lift up to the Masterton Hospital on day two, and I was having a chat to her then, and uh, that was really very, very interesting. And uh, she was a lady that had definitely uh, was lady of the world and... Uh, was incredibly interesting to listen listen to and yeah a very very helpful very down to earth but she knew a way around the world that's for sure <laughs> and uh, uh, we got on really well and I remember thinking oh god you know this is the mother of this guy and she's very very helpful um, it was quite strange but anyway I did yeah I spent a lot of time talking to Robin. Uh, Williams every day over the next 10 or 11 days, that's for sure. If you just tuned in, by the way, I'm talking to John Golter, who was uh, a detective, detective sergeant in the Coral Ellen Burroughs case, and we're talking about how he managed to um, identify Stephen Williams, Coral's stepfather, Coral Ellen's stepfather, as the killer and, uh, and, and how that sort of transpired. So uh, she eventually said something to you that was pretty helpful, John? Yeah, I mean, it was a... At the time, a lot of the things that uh, Nick and I probably did at the time were more instinctive, but in reflection, were, thank God we did. They were quite strategic. We, we had good relationships with uh, Stephen's mother, with Robin, and we also had a, a reasonably good relationship with Stephen. I mean, even though a lot of people say, oh, he must have been a suspect from the get-go, well... He was a person of interest, and this goes back to you, you can't close your mind off and say, oh, he's the man, he's in the frame, and we didn't do that. We had built a relationship with him, and we had we wanted to find out actually what went on and whether he was key to this or not. It was still up in the air. It wasn't definitely not set in concrete. So in retrospect, that was, that was crucial to uh, finding Coral. So... I often look back and think, you know, thank God we did what we did because it worked out right in the end. And a lot of that was, you know, treating people with respect and being empathetic, even mm. if we have our own perceptions or biases or whatever, um, which we've all got, but you have to park up. That was one one of many lessons I learnt is always make sure that uh, don't um, close your mind off too early, be very clear about what you're trying to do and how you treat people. Um, and, you know, roll on 10 days' time, it was Stephen Williams who asked if he could speak to me to uh, tell me that he'd committed the murder. So yeah, tell, us, tell us about that. How did you get that message? Well, uh, he was in custody, of course, so he was in Rumataka Prison. And uh, so 
I wasn't able to communicate with him, but I'd been dealing with his mum and his mother was giving me a, a lot of the background to Stephen's life and her own life and um, a lot of really, really uh, interesting but crucial stuff to know, in addition to the fact that we were doing this little part with Stephen and uh, Robin Williams and so forth, but there was also a massive big search going on, uh, all the other inquiries, so there was, it was a huge deal. But we were sort of in our own little bubble <laughs> dealing with uh, the Williams family, so to speak. Mm. So Robin had been talking to Stephen a lot and saying that she'd been talking to uh, myself and Nick. And obviously during this time when he was in custody, there was a lot of time for him to dwell on what had occurred. I was starting to get a you know, fairly solid feeling that there was something wasn't quite right here. And as the inquiry was going along, it was... Uh, little things were popping up which were uh, indicating that Stephen's just more than a person of interest, you know. He was he was a suspect. It was about day 10, he was talking to his mother and he said, I think I need to speak to John Golder. <laughs> so he did. And I jumped in the car thinking, wow, OK, and went down and went over to... Uh, up a hut when he we got a an order and he was released from um, Rumataka Prison and I interviewed him at the Upper Hut Police Station and that was the first of many interviews. So about I think it was about seven or eight o'clock at night I interviewed him. Um, his mother came over as well. He admitted to what he had done and that's when we jumped in the car and I asked him if he would show me where Coral was. And that's pretty much how that went. Yeah. You know, and of, of course, it's an amazing feeling when someone says, could I speak to John Golder, please? I was like, I'm pretty happy about that because I... Yeah. But I, I must say I was absolutely uh, relaxed about it. I knew that he was going to... I, I knew that he was going to tell me that what he had done. I just... Well, on your way there, you knew. Yeah, I just even when uh, Robin Williams said to me, oh, Stephen wants to talk to you, uh, I absolutely, 99% in my head, I thought he's, gonna, he's going to admit to this. Why, yeah. do you think, why do you think he admitted to it and, and didn't keep his mouth shut and try and keep away, get, get away with it? Well, I think uh, guilt. Absolutely, I think uh, getting stuck away in prison, I think that overwhelming realisation about what he had actually done, bearing in mind that the relationship between uh, Stephen and Coral, as I understood it, was actually a good one. It wasn't like they didn't like each other. From all accounts, they had a great relationship. So I think the horror of coming to the realisation of actually what he had done was an overriding factor in why he thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to admit to this. So also, tell me... There's a few other things, too, yeah. I think, that um, that played into this was that... There was a lot of media interest at the time, you know, a lot of a media intensity, and he knew that the whole country basically had zoned in on him. And the smartest thing, I think, that we'd done is not been part of that. We'd been non-judgmental, and it was one of the things yeah. he did say. He did say, because I said to him, I said, why did you... Uh, he said, well, I knew, I knew the whole country hated me, but I, I, you weren't judgmental. And I remember him saying that, and I'm thinking, wow, another lesson learnt. 
And I suppose when I look back, and uh, you know, years later, I was speaking to other detectives about interviewing in bits and pieces. It was one of the key things is to hang on to trying to be non-judgmental, despite what you may be thinking, because you could be the person that they go to to tell. Do you remember the drive uh, <laughs> to to find the body? Yes, I do. Yeah, I mean that was the drive over the. The hill was the night of the first interview, so it was, you know, probably day ten of this inquiry, and I remember really, really, really uh, wanting to find Coral's body. It was a very, very intense because, yeah, it's one thing to find the person who has committed the murder, and there's another part to getting the body. And, you know, it was a tough area over there. It's a massive area. And the the search area, as it transpired, was a long way away from where uh, she was eventually found. So I remember the drive from Upper Hutt over there, and my, my biggest fear the whole time was that Stephen was going to come to this realisation of what he had done and clam up or just go, no, I'm not going to show you or I'm not going to tell you where the body was. That was my biggest fear, to be yeah. honest. And I must say, that was a, I remember that very, very clearly because it was a very intense trip and it was dark and really windy and we had to go down to the bottom, way down the bottom end of the uh, Wairapa, you know, the bottom of the North Island. And it was so dark and he was trying to describe where he had put her and... Of course, it was hopeless down there. There's no light. It was all looked the same. And in the end, we got a local farmer and described to him what had been described to us. And he said, oh, I know where that is. And jumped in his tractor or his truck, I can't remember which, and drove us out there. And we eventually got out there. And Stephen Williams said, that's where she is there. It was just the absolute middle of nowhere. And it was very late, about 11 o'clock at night, I think. A couple of guys went over with torches and eventually found her. Uh, that was a huge relief, massive relief. There's one thing I do remember about uh, the inquiry was the relief I felt at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there were subsequent interviews with Stephen Williams past that where we obtained more of the story and exactly what had occurred and we found some other clothing and other evidence. But uh, once, w- once we had the body and I knew that... You know, he was the offender. There was huge relief, that's for sure. I think it was huge relief for everyone. And, and was it pretty straightforward from there through the trial and to his conviction? Well, you know, uh, the interviews were done really well. We got everything we possibly could, and uh, Stephen pleaded guilty, so there was no trial. It was mid mid December of 2003. He pleaded guilty to the murder and I think got 15 years, sentenced to 15 years and the Crown appealed it and he ended up getting sentenced to 17 years in prison. So he's due to be released, or was due to be released on 2021. For those of us who remember that case, it's incredible really to even think about the idea of him being released. Yeah. Um, However, recently, I'm sure you saw that story Mm. as well, he was sentenced again for uh, attempted murder on an inmate. Yeah. And uh, to me, no surprise, to be honest. You know, Stephen is... I remember back then, there's a lot of complexities 
to that character, and um, I don't really think Stephen ever wants to get out of prison. Mm. Um, you know, uh, for a number of reasons. So, you know, I wasn't totally surprised when I saw that, uh, to be honest. In fact, was that his second... I think so. ...attempted murder in prison? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember just off the top of my head, but... Um, 2017 and again in 2019. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no, there's no will to get out of there, that's yeah. for sure. So I think it's preventative detention now. What about the um, Coral Allen's family? Did you probably guess how they were doing during the... Um, her mum and her dad during the uh, yeah. investigation, but what can you tell us about them? Well, you know, Jesse, I didn't have a lot to do with the family. Um, it was almost like we were in our own little bubble dealing with uh, Stephen and Robin and the interviews and... Uh, so yeah. forth, but of course there's Ron and uh, Gemma Kremen. They are, they are the uh, parents. Yeah, I mean, what can you say? It's the as a as a parent, it's your worst nightmare. And I don't know how you ever come to terms with something like that. It was and it was as horrible at the time as you can imagine for Ron and uh, Gemma Kremen. I mean, it was it's horrible. Horrible for the whole community, but, you know, as, as their family, it was just uh, wrecked. And the younger brother, or the, sorry, the older brother, Storm, who's, you know, 20, uh, probably 24 or 25 now, um, as well, losing his sister. So, yeah, terrible. Was it uh, one of the biggest cases of your career? Um, look, I suppose it was. You know, I didn't sort of view it like that. It was just... How it all unravelled. I've been on other murder inquiries and serious crimes, and you know other cases that are equally as horrific, to be honest. But of course, this one sticks in my mind, and I didn't really have much to do with. Uh, post this inquiry, I just uh, sort of carried on, and I think I went off to music school and I came back to the police. And it wasn't until about you know four or five years later, I think, it was at the police college, that I started reflecting on what actually occurred in this inquiry and using some of that because there was some uh, really good stuff done there and it was one of uh, a number of cases but of course it had such high profile for you know for a number of reasons I think there have been a lot of murders in the wire wrapper over the years and of course that fed into this too that yeah, here I am you know, 20 years later and it's still a feature in people's minds but uh, yeah I mean police workers full of horrible and uh, intriguing cases, but uh, of which this was one. But, yeah, definitely it's probably been the, one of the more high-profile ones that stuck around. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes on the RNZ website or we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or wherever you find your podcasts. And once you've finished binging this series, you might like to try Untold Pacific History or the New Zealand Wars series for your regular history fix. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.